Welcome to Data Dialogues. Each Data Dialogue is a three-part conversation. The first two segments individually highlight a person working with environmental data that acts as a starting place for our group conversation with both guests. By talking through who's using what kinds of data and how, we're working to personalize the landscape that environmental data is sitting in so that it can be more accessible and useful to everyone. I'm your host, Angela Eaton. I'm here with Gwen Smith. Gwen is the founder of CHARS Incorporated, which stands for Community Health Aligning Revitalization, Resilience, and Sustainability. CHARS is an environmental health organization focused on environmental justice and equity issues that impact the health, economics, and education of African Americans and other marginalized communities. Gwen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I really am. It's a beautiful day in Atlanta. Well, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Gwen, before we get into it, will you tell me about a favorite place of yours outdoors? Wow. I love the outdoors, so that's hard because there's multiple places. But I'd have to say I like the Caribbean beaches or any beaches where I can see my toes <laughs> so that I know what's in the water. I really hope that the water quality is good enough anywhere that you put your feet in that you can see your toes, but maybe that's not always true. The Atlantic is not, you cannot see your toes in the Atlantic, in much of it. <laughs> All right. So how do you connect your experiences outdoors, the places that you love, that are important to you. How do you connect that to your work? Well, the enjoyment of it, right? I think everyone, no matter who they are, should have access to enjoying the environment that they are in to the fullest of what the environment has to offer. And that means breathing, you know, and enjoying nature. And just like getting to sit in it quietly and breathe it in, to feel it, to hear the sounds in its purity. So when you are doing your work, now you originally, Chars, was um, located in a community of place. Now a lot of the work that you do is in Collier. Yes, Um Collier Heights Historic District is located in the city of Atlanta. It's a historic district developed by African Americans, where African Americans only have lived um, up until recently, within the last five years. And it's full of trees, and the houses sit on anything from a third of an acre to two acres. However, as soon as you leave the neighborhood, you run into industrial areas. No matter which direction you exit, you're probably within 100 yards of an expressway or some kind of industrial site, a food swamp, which means there are more um, unhealthy foods and unhealthy restaurants in the area than there are healthy ones. So it's not quite a food desert but it's still very bad. Mm -hmm. We're just, you know, surrounded by things that aren't good for our health, like the airport that's a half a mile away <laughs> that flies over our, our community. 
So what other issues are you working on in terms of equity and environmental justice with your community right now? Wow. So right now I'm working on three different things. The grant project that I'm working on focuses on radon. And this project is within the borders of Collier Heights community. The information we have about radon in our community is that there's only been four or five homes tested. Radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer in the United States. We are looking at health messaging in African-American communities for radon gas to find out what can be done to increase their knowledge and then increase the number of tests on radon. How did, how did you even come to radon as the issue to start investigating with this? two professors that I'm working with, Dr. Dejun Dai from Georgia State University and Dr. Nataki Osborne-Jelks from Spelman. Well, Dr. Dai did a similar project in another county, a neighboring county, DeKalb County. You know, and again, that was with an African-American community. And he saw the, the difference in testing in, in non-African-American communities. And so he wanted to do the project in another community, and he applied for a grant with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Interdisciplinary Research Leaders. And it requires two researchers um, that do that professionally and one community member. And he wanted to follow up on that radon testing that he'd done in DeKalb County and see what was happening in city of Atlanta or Fulton County where we're located. And that's how we came to this project. They came to me because asked me to be the community partner, because when I worked at the Department of Public Health for the state of Georgia, one of the first things I did was I was, um, I was actually an intern and with them in 2009 and worked on a Brownfields project that also um, did a portion of testing for radon gas and was able to go out to like 139 homes and do door-to-door surveys and how to hand out radon test kits. So I already knew about radon. Okay. So um, it's pretty clear what Dr. Dye has as uh, improving or um, keeping keeping along with the radar, radon research um, that, that they've done previously. So Mm -hmm. what, what are your goals in participating in this as a community member? Oh, wow. So that's very clear to me. One of the things that Robert Wood Johnson Foundation asked us before we were chosen was how would we scale this? How would we continue this after they stopped supporting us financially? And Um, For me as a community member, that's easy. We already have um, community researchers that will be working along with professional researchers, right, Um, academic researchers. They're going to learn about this. If, as we hope to do, we move it to a neighborhood next to ours, we'll take those community researchers with us and have them speak to their community leaders about their experience and hopefully recruit those community members to want to be a part of the project based on what these community researchers found, what they experienced. Of course, this is going to take some more funding, but we're hoping that the paper we write 
will, you know, have some benefits from it. And let me share that I'm a community member. In addition to having um, this organization, I live in Collier Heights and I do have a bachelor's degree, but most people who are published have a master's or a doctorate. And so just as the other community members are, the kids might get a letter of recommendation as they're going to college. They may not go to college, but they have this on their resume when they apply for a job. Um, They can use us to check references. The adults can put it on their resume or go for a different kind of job they thought they would never go to. I'm going to be published. I mean, not something I definitely was, not something I was looking to do, right? But I know the meaning of being published. I know the benefit of that. And so I too am benefiting from this. And what's important to me is that when researchers come into our community, that they not just extract from our community by collecting data, but that they make a deposit. And so as when I was asked to be a part of this project for Radon Gas, and it's called um, Remove. And I'd have to get you the acronym. I'm sure that. that means something, right? Okay. We, <laughs> it does. We we can uh, we can put it in the show notes, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. So um when they asked me about joining, you know, I said that's great, but A, I want it just to be done in Collier Heights because the areas around us get a lot of attention. B, I want the students to be paid. And they said, we'd already decided to do that. I was like, great. Three, I want you to hire people. I want to hire three people to also be researchers. Because usually what happens is research is done. They may give something to the community. It could be a gift card. They may, you know, one or two people might be the persons whose names are their gatekeepers or leaders in the community. But I want more. I think that they should learn about the community and understand the needs and they need to deposit something. But this radon project, it's hired six or seven people, three adult community workers, um, It has allowed me to hire an assistant for CHARS, and it's going to hire three to five youth, paying them $10 an hour. Two of the adult researchers will be $15 an hour. One of the researchers will be $20 an hour. So that's going to immediately have an impact economically. This scope is going to make a very conscious effort to reach out to all of the 1,700 homes in Call Your Heights, to really include everyone. We're only seeking to test 200 homes, but everyone needs to hear the message. And does the radon, um, do people experience radon only in their basements or the, where are they experiencing this? How, how because you, you can't smell radon, you can't know that it's there unless you test for it. Is that correct? That is correct. And you're not going to test for it unless you know about it. Right. So how I'm connecting the science to the community are two ways. One is using social determinants of health to talk with the residents about what that is so they can do the intersection about where they live, work, and play, and practice their faith and how what's going on to affect their health. And the other way is 
to get them involved in what we're doing. With our reaching out to 200 people, we're going to survey them to find out what they know about radon. Of course, we're going to get the demographics as well, but those 200 people will also get test kits. Do you feel like, you know, my here's my hope. My hope is that it's not just Gwen that can do this, that in all of these education um, uh, processes, that the, these different activities that you're setting up, that all of that ends up being a tighter knit between the community and the government services. So, and that, that you're not the only person. Oh, well, first of all, one of the main things that uh, Charles's vision is, is that community members can begin to advocate for themselves. Okay. So I should never be the only person out there. One of the things that I see as an issue in African-American communities is that people that have power are always trying to put one African-American up front and out there to be seen. And that person becomes the spokesperson. So if we allow, if we educate, share information with adults and youth, they begin to have their own opinions and their own voice and to be able to advocate for themselves. That's one goal. So we have a community association and also, um, well, with the community association, this information gets out to them as far as just talking with them about it. Now, one of the things that I have done is done PowerPoint presentations um, at local colleges, um, at Emory's um, School of Public Health. I've done one at Agnes Scott and told people about it, showed them these presentations and talked with them about how this is impacting health and how is it impacting community health. Also, I advocate with community members that when they're having problems, that they should go ahead and call in. Now, currently, with call, this, call in where? Call in I'm to sorry, call our council members. Call the council members. Okay. Yes. So, yes, we involve um, the city at times. Right now, because the city is not responding to the flooding, we have something called neighborhood planning units that mm-hmm. deal with the planning of the city, but they are our representatives and we are the ones that go to the meeting and help make decisions. So a lot of the community members have complained to them when there's been flooding and they were actually keeping track. And so I'm about to partner with another um, uh, organization and we are going to start tracking that information, but we're also going to involve youth to where we're going to teach the youth how to use an application called EPA, Environmental Justice Screen, EJ Screen is what it's called. And also talk to the community members, ask the community members to report when there's flooding, to take pictures of it, because it tends to be flash flooding and then it disappears. So have them take pictures of it or video of it and submit it to us. And we want to teach the kids to document it via the EJ Screen, pinpoint where this is happening. And so we can document it, we can share it with the rest of the community members, um, and then what we can do is take this information to the city, to the Department of Watershed Management, and say, hey, this is what's happening, and this is collective, 
This is not only Collier Heights, these are these other communities also that have contributed information. And this is wrong. This is problematic. Do you feel like uh, the way that you're collecting information is being received? Um, it's a learning process, right? So you have people, I know that I've felt before that I don't have power. So why would you even complain? Nobody's listening. I've called a thousand times. So it's like going through that first, but you don't stop. And then people come on board. So I'm at a point right now where people are listening. Who's the, what is this Charles? Who is this Gwen? But she keeps coming back. So that's a process of earning trust, building relationships with people, listening and understanding their concerns. And as far as, I used to work for the state Department of Public Health, and I learned a lot that when you're at states and counties level, and even city levels, sometimes your hands are tied. That because of rules and regulations, you might not be able to do what you want to do. Sometimes they're restricted from working directly with the community. However, if it's the other way around and the community is requesting to work with them, then they may figure out a way to do that. And we have to begin to understand instead of um, having problems and othering the state and the agencies and them also saying those people and othering African-Americans, we have to begin to call each other in and begin to have conversations and realize these are the challenges that we as a municipality or a government are having. And and for the communities, the African-American communities and marginalized communities to be able to say, these are the challenges we're having. How can we work? What can we do to resolve these? And so that's why I try to be conscious about the programs that I put together. I asked the Department of... um, the city of Atlanta Department of Watershed Management to come out and work with the kids to mark the sewer drains. And um, they partnered with Department of Watershed Management, partnered with the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper and West Atlanta Watershed Alliance to go around to the different creeks like Sandy Creek and test the water with the kids. And so it's an opportunity to build relationship also. And then that also means that the the kids and the neighbors and the neighborhood is directly interacting with the local government in this case. Right. Okay. Local government and also with other organizations, you know, and here's the bottom line. If you get to work with people, you have an opportunity to see their humanity. If you are working with an agency and organization You don't see the individuals. And how do you see the humanity in someone if you can group people together? Okay. Uh, I I have a question for you. Uh, Do you know who your dialogue partner is? Yes. Michael. So you already know Michael. You've interacted with him a couple times, but you're going to have a conversation with him coming up. 
For our listeners, Michael Ogletree is the Air Quality Program Manager in the City and County of Denver's Department of Public Health and Environment, and he's the city lead on Love My Air Denver, an incoming director of the Air Pollution Control Division at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Do you have any sparking thoughts for Michael? I do. I'm I'm really interested in knowing how he balances, you know, people just don't work with the community and develop a program that helps them without having some passion. And so I was wondering about how does he balance that with working for a municipality? And as I mentioned before, sometimes municipalities have limitations. So how do you build a program that allows you to really help to the extent you want to when you have those limitations, whether they're financial limitations or, you know, managerial limitations or legal limitations? Okay. Where can we learn more about the uh, projects or about CHARS or about you online? I don't have a big presence yet. Here we are. So, (laughs) yeah, um, we will be launching a website soon and a Facebook page once I hire someone who knows how to do that. Fantastic. It's coming. I can't wait to talk with you more and to talk with you and Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We'll see each other soon. This segment is one of a three-part conversation series. To listen to Michael Ogletree's individual conversation with me, or to hear our group conversation with Michael and Gwen, please visit us wherever you listen to your podcasts or at openenvironmentaldata.org. To read a transcript of this episode and to access resources mentioned throughout the show, please take a look at our show notes, which you can find in the caption for this episode or at openenvironmentaldata.org. This podcast was created by Emma Grimm, Angela Eaton, Michelle Cherupka, Shannon Dosmegan, Amelia Williams, and Katie Hoberling, with music by The Westerlies. Data Dialogues is supported by the Open Environmental Data Project, which is funded by the Shuttleworth Foundation.